Britain is leaving the European Union. The European Union says if you're going, go soon. NATO is more important than ever, says the Secretary General. More British troops to Iraq as Fallujah falls. Countdown to Chilcot, the full story of Britain's part in the Iraq war. And Somme, the ghastliest word in history. Britain's going, the EU president says. Get on with it. So where does that leave the British military in? Out? Or has nothing changed? The man who should know, NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg, he says he has no doubts. Today, as we face more instability and more uncertainty, NATO is more important than ever. As a platform for cooperation among European allies and between Europe and North America. A strong, united and determined NATO remains an essential pillar of stability in a turbulent world and a key contributor to international peace and security. The Alliance remains committed to closer cooperation with the European Union. At the Warsaw Summit in July, we will step up our cooperation because together we are more effective in upholding our common values and keeping our nations safe. The man who does know is the Defence Secretary Michael Fallon. Make no mistake, regardless of the result of the referendum, we will remain a major international power with global responsibilities. Leaving one particular union means we will have to work even harder at our commitment to others and to our key bilateral relationships. And meanwhile, the Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Nicholas Carter, is saying it's business as usual. As far as we're concerned, there's absolutely no change to our army-to-army relations and indeed to our many operational commitments and defence and security relationships. Well, to Capitol, we have former Ambassador to Washington, Sir Christopher Mayer. This is the most radical thing that has happened in our foreign relations in my lifetime. Maybe for the last hundred years, if not longer. I think it will require a fundamental rebalancing and rebooting of our relations, particularly with those who are our traditional allies, because it is precisely they who have warned us against doing this thing, notably Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, and the United States um, of America. I think because this process of renegotiation, of extraction, looks like taking a very long time, three years minimum, maybe longer, um, that the nation, to safeguard its interests, by that I mean its security and its prosperity, will have to do things in the interim to reassure those who have always considered that they enjoy a close uh, relationship with the United Kingdom. And I think we have to consider some quite uh, radical stuff, particularly to counter the myth, if it is a myth, Um, that we're shrinking, shriveling, and turning in on ourselves. And I think, Chairman, some of the kinds of things that need to be considered in short order are, for example, a recommitment to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which we could make material by agreeing to increase our defense budget, for example, by half a percent, maybe even one percent, and to say that this will be ring-fenced for NATO operations. 
Well, I'm joined by Professor Malcolm Chalmers, Deputy Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, and as usual by BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to you both. Professor Malcolm Chalmers, you were sitting right next to Sir Christopher Mayer in that House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee meeting on Tuesday. Is that how you see things? I think that's right. This is a an absolutely fundamental turning point in British or indeed European security. The European Union and NATO have been the dual pillars of the post-war order in Europe. And now the future of one of those pillars, or at least the UK's role in it, is under question. It's far too early to know what the results of all this will be. But make no mistake, this is about security as well as about economics. It's not easy to separate out those two pillars. But just as one of the critiques of the European Union uh, from the levers was that this has gone far beyond uh, a trading organisation, it has. It's, it's a political organisation. It's an organisation that gets involved in foreign security policy. And we're about to step outside uh, a forum which has been critical in dealing with a whole succession of security issues from Iran to Russia uh, to uh, the crisis in the Mediterranean in, in recent years. Mm. How we continue to work uh, cooperatively uh, with our European neighbours in those areas where NATO uh, isn't the right body remains to be seen. Mm, and Christopher Lee, the, the EU's Global Strategy Report came out this week. What did it say? I was listening to uh, Federica Mogherini, um, who's the High Representative, like, like a foreign minister for the EU. And she said... Uh, one particular thing that uh, caught me, we will keep deepening the transatlantic bond, our partnership with NATO, you see. that was So that covers that bit to some extent. But then she went on to say, well, we'll also connect to new players and explore new formats. What would that mean, potentially? Uh, well, if, if, you, if you were nervous about the EU, she was saying that hidden somewhere in that phrase, although it was never used and the term was never used in what she said, nor in the report that she gave to the, the summit meeting, was the word Euro Army. And so you have this sort of slight mm. sort of conflict, but we have to understand two particular things, or remember two things, and that is that quite often EU members are members of NATO, vice versa. Not all of them, but some of them are. And therefore the politics of both organisations are very much linked. The other thing, the most important thing, it doesn't matter how you play the politics, say, in the United Kingdom or in certain uh, Euro continental European capitals, the uncertainties are exactly as they were before Thursday last week. Uh, for example, relations with Russia and whatever else is going on. And the way to deal with them is by and large the same. And therefore you get that which, one line of continuity. Which leads on to the business as usual, I suppose, statement by the head of the army. Professor Chalmers, what does this mean in military terms? Do you agree? Or, or do we need another strategic defence and security review? Well, I think that the first factor which we can't yet predict exactly is how far the uncertainty, the economic uncertainty created by uh, this vote will impact on the British economy. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's very early days. Uh, if the economic impact were considerable and there were to be a significant recession uh, over the next couple of years, then that would impact uh, on, on government revenues and therefore it would throw up the possibility of a new spending review at the end of this year which would in turn impact on the defence budget. Do you think that would affect the programmes like uh, the, the equipment pro buying programme at the moment, the orders for example for the uh, RAF's F35B, the first of which has arrived in the UK today? 
I think it might well do. Uh, after all, we're committed to uh, keeping to the 2% target of, of national income through to the end of the decade. Uh, but uh, if GDP is lower in 2020 than was predicted at the end of last year, then we will be getting 2% of less. And if GDP is 5% lower than otherwise predicted, then it's reasonable to assume defence would also get 5% less. It's also, isn't it true, Professor, that all these uncertainties, especially those about spending and certain projects, of course, uh, and also how to do the practical side, like finding the manpower for a lot of the projects, certainly the carriers, those uncertainties were there anyway, in or out of Europe. And the spending on major projects is always going to be vulnerable because of that. I think, that, I think that's absolutely right. The, the spending review settlement for defence, uh, uh, which accompanied the SDSR, it was better than people had expected, but it was essentially a stabilisation of the budget. The budget's not growing very much in real terms. Mm. Uh, and um, there's a, a lot of assumptions about efficiency savings and so on built into to the budget in order to be able to afford the new procurement the government's going ahead with. If the defence budget takes a further hit, uh, then they will have to rethink some of so, those commitments. Uh, Professor Chalmers, I imagine uh, the events of last week is, is plenty of new material to digest the Royal United Services Institute. What kind of reports are you going to be working on? Well, we're going to be looking at various different aspects of this. Of course, a lot of it depends on what the new sort of relationship uh, the UK will have with the EU. There are best case options and worst case options uh, from a security point of view, from a national security point of view. We're going to be looking at, at how we can uh, uh, continue uh, a, a very strong role in NATO. There may be actually, I think there's a strong argument for a, a bit of a British pivot towards Europe, especially in the short term, to reassure uh, our European allies that we take European security seriously, because there have been some voices in the Leave side who've emphasised that this leaves the UK free to concentrate on its global role and, and do less in Europe. So I think that's an important aspect. Plenty of work to be getting on with. I'll let you go. Professor Malcolm Chalmers from the Royal United Services Institute, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Sit Rep with Still to come, we remember the Battle of the Somme a hundred years on. Britain is sending another 250 military personnel to Iraq, almost doubling the number of British forces in the country. The announcement came in a written statement to MPs from the Defence Secretary. Uh, Christopher, can you tell us any more about this deployment? Yeah, it, it really builds on, obviously, what's there, and it is building on there rather than finding another job that's to be done, and it, it reflects what's going on at the moment. I mean, for example, the if, if we go back, what, just five days, we have the Iraqs claiming that Fallujah has last fallen. That was five weeks of fighting. Mm. Uh, and also we had uh, early this morning um, uh, IS uh, uh, fighters trying to escape from Fallujah. So obviously some still in there. There was 12 burnt out vehicles. So those sort of statistics actually are looked at at the MOD and they say, well, look, we're sending anyway. Mm. They're not suddenly saying, good gracious me. How long will this have been what, planned what, what, for? What's happened? Well, the original lot, I suspect this goes back about three months. Mm. And this comes under the what if. Uh, uh, sort of stuff. The thing is, if you've got 500 there, you need to identify quite a lot of other people, perhaps 1,200, 1,500, 
who to keep the the continuity of keep people there because you just don't leave them there until until the job's done. And they're going to be carrying on with the training mission with uh, counter IED is, work. Is, well, there's counter IED, but, but I mean it's, it's the training mission and also the intelligence gathering. When you brought special forces into anywhere, you have to go back to the original definition of special forces or the idea of them, say, years ago, and that was to go get information and bring it back. Uh, eyes on the ground, human, etc. Do you see that it's going to stay at this kind of level? Uh, there's no indication that it's going to is going to change quickly, and that's largely because of the state of the Iraqi government and the corruption and the inability to operate as a government, the state of the Iraqi uh, army, and some of the targets, for example, they now go on, they go north to Mosul, and they try and do the same job on Mosul as they did on Fallujah. That is not very easy, especially when you haven't taken Fallujah back. Mm. You've then got to hold it. And that is probably as difficult as getting hold of it in the first place. Some other stories uh, to mention this week. The violence continues in Afghanistan. Taliban bombers have attacked an Afghan police convoy outside the capital, Kabul, killing at least 30 people, wounding 50 others. Yeah, and also you have probably more important than anything else, one of the major groups, the Muqtada's group, in uh, group in, in, in Afghanistan, has pulled out of the agreement in Kabul. How and significant I, is that? It's exactly? significant in as much that it's always tenuous, and this has been going on since 1838. I mean, I suppose it's not surprising, people. is it? It's not surprising, and and don't forget that as much as we hold it up and hope we have uh, can continue to do so, uh, Afghanistan is what we would call uh, a failed state, and therefore it is it is operated at that sort of level where a large chunk a chunk of it can just say, "I'm just pulling out of the government. I don't believe this is happening." at all. I mean, we think that only happens at Westminster, but it happens on a much grander scale mm. in Afghanistan. Uh, an important report in the United States into the killing of the US ambassador in Benghazi. What is the significance? What's it saying and what's the significance, Christian? Well, the significance is twofold. One is that uh, it, it involves indirectly uh, Hillary Clinton, one of the um, presidential candidates, uh, because of certain emails that were, that, that were current at the time. So that is, to some extent, she's got to answer questions. You don't like to answer questions, which are awkward questions like that when you're right in the middle of a Presidential candidature, and also so the, the chairman of releasing well, of a report. Well, is it? The, the chairman of the the chairman of the committee uh, that has released this uh, report is a Republican. Mm. Uh, still fighting in Yemen. Um, how come we don't hear so much about this? We don't hear so much about it because uh, because we haven't uh, you know in the crudest way we don't have cameras there. Uh, I mean, that's the, that's the crucial thing. The concentration is on Syria. It, it, it is uh, certainly on, on Iraq and Syria, uh, on Turkey. It is in that sort of northern mm. part of what's going on. But the Gulf states, and especially, uh, especially the Yemen, is in a terrible state, is another failed state. It is, we, have, we also have special forces there. But we do not have the sort of coverage because it's a war that they can get on with and it's not going to spread much from there. Yeah, a little closer to home. In Poland, they're tearing down old Soviet statues. I What's think it's going marvelous. on? Well, you, <laughs> <laughs> you can say that, can't you? From, I, from your nice protective position here in well, the studio. Well, I, I, I do. I do. Um, during, 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 um, uh, during the Cold War, when Poland was part of the near abroad, uh, i.e. The, the Warsaw Pact, um, Soviet statues or statu statues of Soviet people went up all over the place and there was one outside the public library and there was one outside the, the, the uh, security centre uh, everywhere to show that Soviet Union ran Poland. Mm. So everything changes after 91, etc. But the statues are still there. And what the Poles have decided that some of those statues, uh, they're not going to pull them down with, you know, with a chunk of rope or anything like that. They're going to take them off and put them in a history park. And the Russians are absolutely hacked off with this. Are they? Be well, yes, because uh, we're going uh, around... They could be showing respect for history. For well, <laughs> yes, well, not the Great Patriotic War. The, 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 the Russians feel very, very strongly of the, the, not just their uh, position, 
but their, uh, their, their, what they would see as their true identity, by, identity mm. being usurped by such an action. And there's one guy said to me, he said, you can just you imagine it, can't you? You wouldn't be wanting to be the person in charge of moving those statues, would you? Really? Well, you wouldn't want to crank one, but as a, a chap was talking to me about it, he said, you know, he said, we'll, we'll get them into the park. He said, but kids throw rocks at statues Ooh. in park. You Ooh. know, and, and, and the relationship between Poland and Russia is, is, is not all that happy at the moment. OK, and um, this time next week, we will know the contents of the long-awaited Chilcot report into the Iraq war. We'll be looking at what the findings mean for the military in a special programme. Um, Christopher, I know you kind of got some ideas of what this report might say. Well, you see, after all these years, nearly a decade, one was almost chill-cotted out. I mean, with the whole thing. <laughs> so but, gonna, is that going to go in the English dictionary, do you reckon? It will if I had any do it. No, I mean, the, the, the thing to consider about Chilcot are two important things. One, and that is that uh, whatever is said about the primes of the time, uh, um, Tony Blair, the papers, etc., as far as they're concerned, Chilcot is going after Tony Blair. And partly because he is Tony Blair. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you're going to have a whole stream Didn't you bump into Chilcot recently? I saw him the other night in the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, as you do. As one does. Wh- which or, or this which one particular does. portrait were you looking at? Uh, I was at the time I was looking at a portrait of Sir, uh, Sir Andrew Motion. Ah. Yes. Anyway, hmm. listen, uh, Poet Laureate. And there's some poetry <laughs> in Chilcot. Um, a lot of the military are going to get fanged on this. The security services, but most important, the intelligence services are going to get turned over quite a lot. Now, a lot of this, if you sat through the whole thing, you'd say, yes, well, we know that. And I think this is going to be the theme from Chilcot. People can say, well, we know that already. But where do we know it already? From Chilcot. It's, one of the, I think, one of the most important documents that will be in the staff colleges for the mm. next 20 years and poured over. Do you think it's going to make uh, real waves when it's released? Yes, it will. I mean, it will, it will make two waves. It will be uh, uh, one wave because of Blair again. You know, Blair, Blair. It was Blair and what done it. Mm. But it will be the sort of people that we haven't thought about too much. I mean, generals who weren't necessarily fighting the war at the time, but they were responsible for a regeneration, etc. And that didn't work. Uh, mm. The advice from the intelligence services, but to, to Tony Blair <laughs> and how that advice was used. More yes, it's much more important, I think, than people imagine. Of course, and more. Two point seven million words. Yeah, and we'll be talking all about it this time next week. Well, uh, tomorrow we'll mark the centenary of the Battle of the Somme. A number of commemorative events are due to take place starting this evening when the Queen will attend a service at Westminster Abbey. Some of the fiercest fighting took place in Delville Wood. The South African Brigade of the 9th Division advanced on the 15th of July, but by the time they were relieved by British units five days later, they had lost 650 soldiers. Michaela Roche reports. I'm in Delville Wood on the eastern side of the Somme battlefield region and today it's a dense wood of oak and birch trees and grassy avenues have been cut between the clumps of trees and they crisscross through the wood uh, with names such as Strand Street and Regent Street Um, and in the middle of the wood is a memorial and a museum to the South African Brigade and those soldiers that fell here. Underneath the trees, I can see thick bushes and undergrowth. Um, But what is incredible is that there's still evidence of many trench systems and shallow shell holes. Some of these shell holes are as deep as five, six feet, and they remain as a real testament to the battle here in 1916. And as you walk along 
under the trees there's a very distinct smell it's very damp it's quite a warm day but it's very damp and uh, just imagining the darkness and the cover of these trees must have given the soldiers to start with but then as the battles continued in Delville Wood how the shelling and the artillery would have cut down the tree cover and made it a really brutal war of attrition here. And I'm now standing by the so-called last tree, which is a hornbeam that's the only surviving original tree of the battles of 1916. It's a really peaceful wood. I'm the only person here at the moment and uh, you can hear the sound of birdsong overhead but this scene is so different to that of July 1916. Delville Wood has been described as one of the worst places on the Western Front. It just strikes me as a very unique place to come and walk and just consider all the lives, the South African the British and the German lives that were lost in this wood. That was Michaela Roche in Delville Wood. Well, a hundred years on, historians are still debating the failures of the Battle of the Somme and the First World War. I'm joined by former soldier, now historian, and author Alan Mallison, who has written a book about why they happened. It's called Too Important for the Generals. Good to speak to you today, Alan. Um, So until now, the opinions have already largely been divided along two lines. Tens of thousands of men sent to their deaths by remote champagne-guzzling generals, or, or the same generals eventually achieved a stunning victory after using clever tactics. How how do you see it all? Well, I think neither of those is right. Um, The first, the champagne-guzzling donkeys, uh, was... Well, we can trace it back to Alan Clark's book of that name, can't we? The donkeys, which uh, in turn um, spawned, well, umpteen things like, oh, what a lovely war, and then Mm. Blackadder... And then it seemed to me you got a a reaction against that obviously grotesque view, um, pushed largely by academic uh, historians, who said, well, look, um, there must be more to it than than that. Um, Victory came in the end, so... um, What's the truth? Uh, so and that's fair enough. That, what is the truth, Alan? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we, none of us would um, would have a book to write if if we could establish what the truth was. What what strikes me is that clearly saying that the generals were donkeys is is, is facile. Um, the decisions they made very often were asinine. Um, and the repetition of those um, decisions was um, even more asinine. But, mm. but to say that that was just because their minds were were, were no more capable of, of, of thought than a donkey is 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 really getting off the hook too too easily. There was this, what was the systemic problem, um, and, and that's really what my book is about. What 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 was the um, the, the military doctrine? Mm. What was the the strategic direction of the war? Um, as I say, the pendulum has started swinging over the other way, saying that they really did as well as anyone could be expected to do, that there was a massive learning curve. I hate that phrase. It, it, uh, it's too glib, and, and a lot of people didn't learn anything, yeah. frankly. Um, but, but, but really, the central charge against the generals, as far as I can see, uh, and, and it's one that um, I think stands very plainly, is that they could not see another way of winning this war than by 
costly offensives on the Western Front. Mm. As an ex-military man yourself, how much notice did you and your comrades take of the lessons, that learning curve from the First World War, the experiences, the tactics used? That's uh, a good question. For a long time, the British Army showed no interest in the First World War. Um, it didn't get round to doing a lessons learned exercise until 1932. Why? Well, for one thing, Haig was um, alive until the end of the, uh, the 20s, uh, and, and almost any um, in-depth look at the war would have been an implied criticism, perhaps, of Haig. And also, there was a sense that this was such an aberration, this was, this was war as it should never be, um, almost led to the to the conviction that well it wouldn't happen again mm. so we didn't study it um, the only aspects of the first world war that really were uh, studied for the staff college entry, uh, staff college entry exams and what have you in later years were the the campaigns of allenby in palestine fluid um, successful clear cut operations um, and, and really, of course, then when you get the second world war, that seems to be so much more relevant to um, nowadays with armoured warfare and what have you. The First World War seems to have just got left behind. The curious thing to me, or, or rather the, 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 the interesting thing to me when I started to write this book and, and study for it is, frankly, there are so many lessons at the strategic and operational level from the First World War which are as applicable now, uh, more applicable actually, Okay. Than the Second World War. So, so do bring us up to date. What, what are those lessons? I mean, what can be applied today in today's environment? Well, it is, uh, first and foremost, it is just what the relationship is between the politicians who are ultimately in charge of um, strategy uh, and, and the military who are responsible for the input into that overall strategy and in particular determining, determining the military strategy and then carrying it out. Now, that has failed manifestly in, in the last 10, arguably 15, 20 or more years. Uh, now, why is that? We were talking about Chilcot earlier on. I hope that what's going to come out of Chilcot is that disconnect between... Uh, politicians and the military. And why is that? Why is there this disconnect you speak of? I, 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 I don't know. I hope that these two and a half million words are going to uh, enlighten us. I, I think that the blame lies on uh, both sides. I think you've got politicians who um, have no uh, um, experience themselves, either directly or indirectly, uh, of war or um, military realities in the way that they used to do, or soldiers who are uh, perhaps not quite as um, strategically minded uh, as previous generations were. There, there aren't so many big men around on either Christopher, side. Christopher. There are no big beasts left at all. No, I mean, there, there's another side of this, uh, um, and that is a prime minister runs a war nowadays. The rest of the cabinet get on with running the country. That's a fact uh, of it. Can I just say uh, something about also in the public's mind about the First World War? Uh, Frederick Steinbrecher, who said, the German said, the whole history of the world cannot contain more ghastly a word than mm. the Somme, for example. Now, it doesn't matter if it's right. That's an image that comes across whether I it's Blackadder or anybody else. Alan, has the, has the Chief of General Staff read your book? 
Uh, th- he's got a copy of it. I hope he's reading it. Yeah, and knowing him as I do, um, I'm certain he will be reading it. And there'll be margin notes knowing him. <laughs> <laughs> you get to see me, will you? Can I, if <laughs> I can just talk about We them, have again. no more time, I'm afraid. Um, Alan Mallison, thank you. And Alan's book, Too Important for the Generals, Losing and Winning the First World War, is out now. Well, that's about all we have time for today. Uh, Do join us next week as we dissect the findings of that all-important Chilcot report. And before we go, on the eve of the centenary of the Battle of the Somme, just picture the scene. A field hospital and, in a bed, a soldier fighting for his life. Here is Christopher reading from Siegfried Sassoon's poem, The Deathbed. He stirred, shifting his body. Then the pain leapt like a prowling beast and gripped and tore his groping dreams with grinding claws and fangs. But someone, someone was beside him. Soon he lay shuddering because that evil thing had passed and death, who stepped toward him, paused and stared. Light many lamps and gather round his bed. Lend him your eyes, warm blood and will to live. Speak to him, rouse him. You may save him yet. He's young, he hated war. How should he die when cruel old campaigners win safely through? But death replied, I choose him. So he went, and there was silence in the summer night. Silence and safety and the veils of sleep. Then far away, the thudding of the guns. British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.